John chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, I lost my voice yesterday and um, wasn't sure what would happen, and I'm just hoping to get through this sermon. Um, God uses weak people uh, to proclaim his mighty truth, so I'm just going to try to do that for us this morning. Uh, we have the, the joy of being in, in John. <clears throat> Last time we did an introduction to the book, uh, giving you in some way a synopsis of what it is that John wants to do uh, throughout the letter, throughout this book. Um, John's desire for you is that you believe in the Lord Jesus. John's desire is that you would believe that he is the true son of God. But John is quite better at introducing topics than I am. And so in John 1, in particular John 1, 1 through 18, it's kind of John's own introduction to this gospel. John is introducing the subject matter to us. Though the purpose of his letter is that he would want us to believe, you have to then ask yourself the question, believe in what? Or, more pointedly, believe in who? And that's what John seeks to answer for us. And we want to begin by looking at John chapter 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. And the Word of God reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Pray with me, Father. I do ask your help in this hour. I ask that you would give me strength to preach, but maybe even more importantly, that you would give us all strength to listen. We thank you for your word that it is true and it is pure and it is light unto our eyes. That if it were not for God revealing himself in this way, none of us would have hope of knowing you and even so having eternal life with you. And so, Lord, we praise you because in Christ, we have come to know that God is the one who reveals himself to us. And so even now, would we give our hearts and our ears to being attentive, not to a preacher, but to God, not merely to someone speaking, but to one who's already spoken, and that being the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you for grace. We thank you for love. We thank you for compassion and mercy. We thank you that... Though we were lost in our darkness, God came forth as a shining light through his Son. These things we praise you for in his precious name. Amen. Well, you are probably aware of and familiar with the Gospels. And each of these Gospels, when you read them, are trying to set us up in some way or another to understand the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so they all begin, each of them in their own way, with somewhat of an introduction. Who is this Jesus that we're talking about? Matthew chapter 1. You can turn there with me. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew seems to ask a similar question to John. Matthew wants to know, And he, in some ways, wants his readers to know, who is this Jesus Christ and where does he come from? So in Matthew 1, 
he begins with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, not the fish, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And I could continue to read, but you're kind of beginning to pick up the point, right? Jesus doesn't just come out of thin air. And in fact, in the way that God is orchestrating redemptive history, in the way that God is uh, putting this plan out uh, to save the world, Jesus comes from somewhere in particular. And Matthew's point is, if you were to bring it down to its base form, Jesus is the promise from Abraham. That covenant made long ago, that those who live by faith would be Abraham's seed. Jesus fulfills that. He is that. You could turn with me to the gospel of Luke. Luke also does something of a similar nature. You guys are familiar with Luke 2. Uh, in Luke 2, you have the gospel account, the birth of Jesus uh, Linus tells it so well with a blanket in hand. You understand how Jesus steps into the scene. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and uh, the word goes out from the governor of Syria, and they're all registered, and Joseph from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Luke takes on a different form. Luke begins to show us this is the, the king that comes from the line of David. This is the Messiah that we've long been awaiting. And this is the one that we've been looking forward to. And he too, in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, gives us his own genealogy of Jesus Christ. He traces him back, and not only to being the king of David, but he traces him back all the way to Adam. Jesus, where does he come from? Matthew and Luke seem to give us this depiction that he's one of us. He's like us. He comes from all the promises that God has made to us. He's, he's born forth as the fulfillment of what God is trying to do with God's people. We could turn to Mark, but Mark barely has an introduction because Mark is kind of that guy who talks at a million miles an hour and he doesn't know how to stop. And so Mark barely gives an introduction because he's just like, let me just tell you all about Jesus and I'll get out of here. And so that's what he does. His introduction is a barely one in Mark 1.1. 1, 1. But even then, his trajectory in the gospel is to show you that this Jesus is like us. He fulfills the promises of God and he is for us. And I think John has a similar intention with us. You can turn back to John chapter 1. <clears throat> but there is also something very distinct and very unique about how John introduces Jesus to us. Many ask this question, who is Jesus and where does he come from? In fact, in chapter 1, verse 45 where Jesus comes to these disciples, Philip and Nathaniel, they seem to think they have an idea. 
They say, we've found the one whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is him. He's our Messiah. This is the one. This is the one they've written about. This is the one that we've heard about. This is the one that the law testifies to. But I don't think they've got the point that John's trying to make yet. You can read on. Look at John chapter 6, verse 42. This question of who is Jesus and where does he come from? After Jesus has made bread to feed thousands and thousands of people, the Jewish people eat it all up and then they also grumble, of course. Because Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they say in verse 42 of chapter 6, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? We begin to make a turn in that section of the narrative. This is the great question. Who is Jesus and where does he come from? And all these Gospels are trying to answer that question. And that question will persist throughout this Gospel. Chapter 7, verse 27. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. You're going to see in this book over and over and over again, people are wondering, who is Jesus and where does he come from? The Gospels have made it very clear to us. He comes as the fulfillment of God's promises. He comes as one who is like us, born just like we are, raised up, grown up just like we did. He is someone who resonates with his people, but John puts the brakes on all of that to remind you at the very beginning of this letter, Jesus is also so unlike you. Jesus is so unlike me. Jesus is the long-awaited one. He is man like we are, but John tells us something altogether different that is going to be so hard for so many to understand in this gospel. And it's so hard for so many to understand about Jesus even now. The reason so many don't believe in Jesus, the reason so many find it difficult to give their life to Jesus, is because they think of him like they think of the person to your right or your left, just another guy. John is seeking to tear all of that down. He is seeking to remind us and to point us to the greatest truth about Christ there is to know. Jesus is God. If you want to know Jesus, And if you want to understand who Jesus is and why he matters so much, why should it matter to care about his life or his ministry? Why should we give ourselves to understanding his commandments and his law? Why should we care about living a life that's pleasing unto him? Why should we believe in the words that he says and the life that he lived? Listen, if he was like us, I would tell you to give up on it. The reason that I would tell you it's worth believing in him is because though he's like us, he is also altogether unlike us because he is God. That is John's message as he begins this awesome gospel story. Jesus stands out. Jesus is not another teacher. 
Jesus isn't another rabbi. Jesus isn't another pastor. He's not another preacher. He's not another religious figure. He's not another philosopher. He's not another life coach. He's not here to give you some guidance in life or to be some kind of counselor. He's not just a guru. If you're going to understand Jesus as he is and as he's revealed himself to be, you have to take Jesus to be God. So many deny Christ And in doing so, they must recognize the one they're denying is the one that made them. And so when John calls you to believe, it's not just in another man. It's in God who made himself to be like men. John calls us to believe because the one that John was with his whole life the one that John followed for three years in ministry, the one that John witnessed perform great miracles, the one that John witnessed give his life on a cross, the one that John witnessed three days later rise up from the grave and talk to his people and be with his people as if death was nothing, that same John desires that you believe because that Jesus truly is God. And he makes that clear for us in this opening dialogue with us. Verses 1 to 18, it serves as an introduction to the rest of this gospel. And first and foremost, let's go ahead and take this beginning portion of it. And from it, let's understand together that throughout this book, there's going to be continued clarity to the reality that Jesus is God. Jesus is the eternal word of God who's come from heaven. This is who we're talking about. This is who we're reading about. This is the life that we're studying. These are the words that we behold. They come to us from God. We're going to have three points to help us understand that this morning. And number one, we're going to look at the everlasting word, the everlasting word verses one through two. Second, we'll look at the life-giving word in verses three through four the life-giving word. And last of all, we're going to see the bright, shining word. The bright, shining word. Verse 5. Let's begin together, looking at verse 1. And I think from the very beginning, as we read it, your mind will immediately go somewhere else, and it's altogether right. In the beginning was the word. The everlasting word. In the beginning was the word. If your brain just took you to Genesis chapter 1, then John is clapping in heaven right now because he did his job. That's what he wanted to do. John's great desire in opening up this book in this way was to take you back to the garden. His desire was to take you back maybe even further along before that. Take you to when there was absolutely nothing. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in order for God to be able to do that, right, in order for in that moment in time, for God to be able to initiate both heaven and earth, God had to already be. 
And this is a truth that we all believe. God is eternal. God is self-sufficient. God is self-existent. God has existed from eternity past, and he will exist for eternity future. God always was, God is, and God will always be. Now John introduces this gospel about a man named Jesus. But before you get caught up in his earthly ministry, God had... John has to tell you something incredibly important about him. In the beginning was the word. The word here is it's synonymous. It's used here in the place of the name Jesus. If we wanted to, we could substitute the word with Christ. And the only reason John doesn't do it is uh, twofold. On the one hand, this gospel, it's probably going to go out to both Gentiles and Jews. And so for the Greeks, this word, word, the word, word, literally the word, word, like I'm talking about that word, it communicates something about intellect. But even more than that, they would equate word, logos, with divine reasoning. It's the highest and most noblest form of thought. And not only for them is Jesus equated to being uh, like the word, he is the word. If you want to think about all reason and all thought and all knowledge and, all div- and anything that's divine, this is it. It's all centered on this person, the word. What's more, John understands he's probably also writing to a context that also involves God's people. And for them, the word of God is uh, something that they're very familiar with. In God's words are God's promises. In God's word is God's power. You see that in the very beginning of God's creation, right? When God speaks, what he wants happens. Whatever God says, it comes to pass. It's why Jesus says in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Because Jesus, being God himself, understands that his words last forever. And Jesus, being God, very God, was there from eternity past and will be there for eternity future. Jesus is this word. He is this pure and perfect sense of who God is. If you want to think about what would God be like? What would, it, what would it look like to know God? I wonder what it would be like to be able to just understand him for a moment. John is saying, if that's you asking that question, turn to his word. Turn to Jesus. Look to Christ. I think we have begun to see this all the more, especially on this side of the cross. It's why words like Hebrews 13 verses 7 to 8 are so important to us. It's funny. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. and Imitate their faith. So it's awesome because we imitate our leaders because of the word they've shown us and how they then live it out. And I don't think verse 8 is random at all. It then says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday 
and today and forever. The reason that Christian leaders should be worth looked up to be looked up to at all, the reason that we revere them and regard them, it isn't just because they tell us what they think, but they tell us truly of God. And the truest thing that you can tell me about God is to believe in his son, to know his son, to recognize that if I want to know God, then I have to know God in the way that he's made himself known. And that is by means of his son. His son is not just one who walked the earth for 30-something years. His son is the one who was there at the very beginning. His son is the one, presumably so, and based upon the scripture in this text even, that in the beginning when God spoke, everything got done. Because when the word was ushered out to create, Jesus made it happen. In the beginning was the word. But there's something awesome that happens here in this text. Hopefully you get as excited about it as seminary guys do, because I, I got pretty stoked about this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's such an important, this is such an important and simple verse to take note of and, and to keep lodged in your memory. What we see here is that John describes Jesus in a way that very quickly sets him apart from the Father, but also unites him to the Father. Or let's put it this way. He is distinct from the Father, and he is also equal to the Father. Do you get that? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus can have his cake and eat it too. If it's hard for you to understand how Father, Son, and Spirit can all be one God, join the club. God has not asked us to reason with him. He has asked us to believe in him. And sometimes I think we psych ourselves out into disbelieving God because it might not make sense to us. It hasn't been, we haven't been asked to make sense of it. Though oftentimes we can through the study of God's word and through a diligent undertaking of what God's word is and what it means. And trust me, I want us to all do that. But I think most important for you in this moment is to understand that when God says something, it's true. And God says in the beginning, there was Jesus. He was both with God and he was God. And that's how it is. This is how awesome Jesus is, distinct from his father, but also one with him. Something that would drive everyone around him crazy to the point of sending him up on a cross. If you want to know why Jesus made it up there, it isn't because he did awesome miracles. It isn't because he wasn't nice to people because he surely was. It isn't because he wasn't kind to people because he surely was. Jesus ends up on a cross because of this. Because Jesus claims to be God, is God, and understands that he is God with the Father and the Spirit. He is the everlasting God. This is who we worship. Maybe in your commitment to Christ, or maybe in your so-called commitment to Christ, it falls short of what you think it should be. I wonder if it's because it's not tied to and tethered to the God of Scripture, the Jesus of Scripture, the one who is eternal, the one who is one with God and the one who is also distinct in his person. 
Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son. There is no one like him. He is not the Father. He is not the Spirit. And yet together, they are one. When you think of Jesus as he is, when you think of Jesus as being the Christ and the God that he claims to be and that all the gospel writers make him out to be, it should stir up in you a different kind of commitment to him. This isn't like allegiance to your your favorite basketball player or allegiance to your favorite music artist. This is allegiance to the God of the universe, the one that verse 2 rounds this conversation out with. He was in the beginning with God. Before the things around you that you can see were in their place, before time began to tick, before we became into being, before breath ever filled your lungs, before the earth had found its form, before the stars were placed where they belong, before the moon was made to hover around the earth, before the galaxies were spread out infinitely, far beyond what we can perceive, Jesus was there. And the issue for you, friend, is this. He is making himself known now so that you would believe in him because all of us will see him one day. All of us will have to come face to face with the reality that Jesus is God one day or another. And if you're in this room, it isn't an accident. It isn't that you just decided to come here. It isn't that your parents dragged you here. There's a, there's a reason you're here. And I would venture to guess it's this, that God, Jesus who made all things and ushers all things to his glory. Jesus, who governs and controls every single thing that happens in this universe, things you can see and things you can't see, he has you here right now to know that he is God. Do you believe him? You have to face him one day. You have to face him in belief or unbelief. Which will it be? He is the everlasting word. Not only so, he's also the life-giving word. He is the life-giving word. Look with me at verse 3 and 4. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Again, here Jesus in his Godness, if we could say it that way, that's taken to another level. Not only is Jesus the uh, one who is presumed to be God, but we recognize it in the fact that he truly has made all things. You remember this from Colossians chapter 1, right? He, He is the preeminent one, and the reason he is is because not only has he made all things, but he holds all things together. And so John picks up on that same kind of doctrine, that same kind of truth. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything you can perceive, everything that has a pulse and a heartbeat, everything that moves, everything that has life in it, it's because Christ made it that way. All things that way because of him. And that would make sense to us. 
one who has life has to be able to give it. We can't give life to one another because that's not something that we're able to do. In fact, man is born, Job says, to die. So, so all of us have an expiration date, but God, because he's eternal, he can give life because that is part of who he is. And so that's exactly what he's done. He's given to all his creatures life. Man, I sound like Miley Cyrus. <laughs> Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gives them life. Psalm 107, 20. He sent out his word and healed them, and he delivered them from their destruction. The word of God ushered out not only to create, but also in Psalm 107, to give life by means of salvation. Are you seeing that? Psalm 107, 20. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. This is the God we're talking about. This is Jesus. Hebrews eleven three. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I love that passage. It bothers people to say that, man, how, why would we believe in God if we can't see him? It's exactly why I believe in him. The things we can see are all finite. The things we can see, they all have an expiration date. The things we can see cannot create all of this. And so if you're telling me that you can't see God, good news for me, because that means he truly did make all of this. And not only is that bound up to God in an abstract way, that is bound up to Jesus in a specific way. All things made through him, without him, not anything made that was made. And so what we see, firstly, is that creatively, by design, as a creator, Jesus is the one who gives life. The reason you are alive in the present, why? Jesus. But there's something else that John is going to begin to do here. It isn't just in creation that Jesus gives life. John is beginning to turn a corner. Genesis is this book about creation. John seems to be a book about recreation. In Genesis, God made the world. In in John, it seems like Jesus is going to finally remake his people. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is not just the one who gives us life in the sense that we are born, but he is the one who gives us life in the sense that in that conversation with Nicodemus, it's that you must be born again. That's who Christ is. That's the kind of life that he offers. The same one who made you. And though he made you, you despise him and rejected him. You've disobeyed him. You've offended him. You've gone against his word. You've rejected his law. You've rejected his perfection. You've chosen to go against the God who's made you. In spite of all of that, he's come back to give you life again. And that life not connected to this one in some sense, that life connected to what is most keen to him, eternality. God is coming to give us life again in accordance with who he is. 
You have an expiration date now. But Jesus comes to offer you the kind of life that is peculiar to him. Life eternal. In him was life. That's the offer that this book is going to make for us time and time again. It's going to say, can you, are you willing to to lay down this life, to give up on this life, one that's dead in trespasses and sin, one that's so far gone from God that you don't merit him, you don't deserve him, there's nothing that he should want to do with you, but because he's so gracious and because he's so good, he sends you his very best. He sends you his son, and in his son is life. Would you receive that? Would you accept God's offer, this life-giving word? Will you accept God's testimony? God is speaking to us today through his son. Caden read that already in Hebrews chapter 1. It used to be that through the prophets and through God's people, God would speak and speak and speak. God is done with speaking. He doesn't have to do it anymore. He's now finally done it through the person and work of his son. Are you listening? Are you heeding? And when you do, are you recognizing that to turn to Christ and to hear his voice and to hear the voice of God that tells you to believe in his son, in that there is life? You might ask, well, what's the point of eternal life? Uh, I'm going through life right now, and it doesn't seem like I'd want to do this forever. (laughs) It's filled with plenty of sorrows and plenty of ups and downs and disappointments and people who hurt me. People who say they care about me and then show something very different. People who turn their back on me. Situations that I didn't even want. Pain that I would never have wished upon myself. A broken family. Difficult times. Whatever it might be. Why would I want this forever? When God offers us eternal life, it's not just that he rids us of death. It's that he also then gives unto us the quality of life that he has, perfection. I wouldn't want to live eternally like this either. I'm too chubby and I'm too short. I I want to figure out and have a life that's much more glorified than that. And in Jesus, that's exactly what we'll get. It's not just that time will no longer continue to tick. It's that we will be perfected. And we will be like God in that way. No longer will there be any crying or any mourning or any tears or any brokenness or any pain or any disappointment. No longer will sin continue to afflict us. No longer will we continue to offend one another. No longer will this flesh continue to pit us away from God. No, we will be perfect. And this is the life that God has come to offer us through his son. It's an awesome truth that God has come to give us life by means of his son. Do you believe it? The trajectory of John's testimony here is that God is only as good as his word. And so he sends us his perfect son to give us life. Do you believe it? He's the life-giving word. And he does this in this time 
while we await for that life that is perfect and eternal in the present, the way that God continues to work through us in his son is this, point three, the bright shining word. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. How is it that Jesus demonstrates unto us his godness? How is it that Jesus demonstrates that he's the true word? He's truly God. He's the one that's made all things and who is promising here to remake those who would believe in him and give them life. It's by means of another very common theme that we'll see in the book of John. Goodbye, all of you helping with boxes. Bring back my voice. It is that Jesus is the light of men. The light of men. He's a bright, shining word. And you guys understand this. This isn't rocket science. Listen, if we were to turn off all the lights in this room, That would be creepy on the one hand, especially when I'm talking like this. But on the other hand, uh, we would be, no one would see anything. And, And here's the thing. You don't need all these lights to fix that. In the darkest kind of room, all you need to do is light a candle. And all of a sudden, we have hope to figure things out in here. When you lose something under the couch, all you do is this. You just turn that thing on. And the minute you do, is it on? Yeah, it's on. Um, the minute that you do, you know exactly where everything, that Cheeto that you lost in the crevices of your couch, that peanut butter jelly sandwich or that tuna sandwich because we've been smelling it for weeks, you know exactly where it is simply because you know how to turn on a light. This world described in so many places in scripture to be like this, uh, darkness, Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. That's the world that we live in. And that's the context into which Jesus enters into the scene. That doesn't scare him off. This world is filled with people stumbling over each other in darkness and total blindness, uh, unable to see God, behold God, care for God, love God, devote themselves to God. Jesus sees the need and he steps in as light to expose that darkness. And I love how John puts it for us here. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It was read for us already. But 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we've heard of him and proclaimed to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so when a God like that steps into a scene like ours, it's going to be really difficult not to behold how bright that light is. And so that is a call to each and every single one of us today. Some of you are still stuck in darkness. Some of you love it way too much. You love stumbling around. You're so arrogant in your pride and in your comfort of thinking that you know everything and you know more than everyone else And even though you keep falling short of God's glory and you keep hearing about how God desires to save you, you you rather be arrogant and proud of where you are in your lostness than turn to God and give in to the truth. God says, I'm the light of men. All you have to do is believe in me and I will give you life. And notice that all your stumbling, 
and all your love for darkness has not turned God away from coming after you. As dark as you may want to be, Jesus has not used that as an excuse to turn away from you. Instead, he's still come in to offer you the very thing you can't give yourself. If you've never believed upon Jesus, this is an opportunity, a call yet again for you to turn to him. But friends, also to you here who already do know the light, already do understand Christ, already know that Christ came as light and that he came to expose darkness and this awesome truth that darkness cannot overcome it. That's, that's the point, right? The imagery is exactly that, that if this room was dark and we turned on the light, the darkness cannot overcome that. Light wins every time. And so that's something to be said then of us who are Christians because that light exposes so much in us And yet there's so many Christians, even in this room, who profess the light, and yet it seems like they love darkness. Friends, it shouldn't be this way. Friends, in your life, there should be no sin so enticing, no sin so lovable that it it outpaces and it seeks to uh, take away the flame and the light that is Christ. There, There should be no sin that is so pleasurable There should be no darkness that is so pleasing that it would want to do away with a light that you profess to have in Jesus. Where there is light, there is not darkness. You guys know what kind of creepy creatures like darkness. Cucarachas. Right? Exactly. Eel. She said eel in Spanish. There's like ill. And then in Spanish it's like eel. It's different. Cucarachas, spiders, rats. Eso. Those things love darkness. And you've already done it. You did the eel. You kind of got a little grossed out. You didn't like it. I just find it funny that we understand how those gross creatures like darkness. And yet at the same time, we can be okay with sin in our hearts, which is the very exact same thing, if not worse. We understand the creepy kind of things that attract to darkness. And all it takes is flickering a light to get those things out. And yet in our hearts, are we allowing darkness to make home for some of the most vile sins, the most vile creatures that exist in our world? I pray that it would never be. And instead, I pray that today you would see that this Jesus who is God, he offers us life and he does that by being a light to us one that exposes all those things in us that have caused us to be so far off from him. And I hope that you would see in the same way that we saw this morning from Luke 19, that the hope of the gospel is truly this, that though we are in darkness and though we have loved sin and though we've offended God and though we've displeased him so often, Jesus saw it fit, God of heaven and God eternal, to become like us so that those who would believe in him could have life. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your truth. Thank you for Christ and thank you for the life that is found in him and in him alone. We see, Lord, that 
uh, apart from you, we can do nothing. And chief among those things is to save ourselves. And so, God, I would ask that you would do that miraculous work in anyone here who has not known you. And, Lord, for those of us who do know you, may we love the light and may we love the life that comes from knowing Christ. Thank you that Jesus saw it fit to step out of his throne room in heaven to be like us so that all who would believe in him could be secure for eternity, knowing his love and grace. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.